Great God, uh, thank you for the saints that have gone before us. We, we thank you for um, those who uh, your spirit moved in to write Holy Scripture and, and the texts that were preserved by the church for our well-being even now here in the 21st century. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your disciple, your apostle John, writing long ago and those churches that he loved and cared for. God, we pray that as we turn to these texts this fall, that, that you would speak to us, that these words would uh, bring us life, that they would point us to Jesus, Holy Spirit, that you'd be moving in us, that these uh, inspired words, breathed out words of God would be breathed out and into our ears and our lives would be changed. Thank you for your scriptures, Lord. Teach us now. Uh, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, maybe you've heard um, this quote. I've been over to the future, and it works. Uh, Lincoln Steffens wrote that in 1919. Uh, you might know this, that he wrote that, actually, having just come back from, back from a trip over to the, the newly formed Soviet Union. Um, the Soviet Union had just developed under Marxist principles, and it had followed, of course, the Russian Revolution, actually, which some of my family fled from. They were Germans living in Russia and fled to Washington State. That's actually partly how my family ended up in Washington State, was out of that time. Um, but Stephens was, was uh, convinced that the United States was in need of such a revolution. And um, well, let me put it this way. He was an investigative journalist of his day. And actually, he was pretty widely regarded as one of the best of the best in terms of sort of investigative journalism and calling uh, government and um, corporations to account for their corruption. Um, he actually specialized in writing about like the corruption of government and the greed of mass corporations and Political power grabbing. He was kind of uh, disgusted with the excesses of capitalism. Um, anyway, he actually wrote, this is interesting, he wrote an entire book called The Traitor State about corruption in New Jersey. He lived in New York. <laughs> of course he wrote a book called that about New Jersey. Um, but he, but uh, he thought that maybe a new way, maybe the Soviet way, uh, maybe this communist way was the hope for reordering society. Uh, maybe this new way would address the problems of tyranny and of, of corruption and greed and taking. Um, maybe this future that he said that he had engaged with was the thing that would actually bring life. The embodiment of hope in enlightenment progress the desire of the nations. So he looked upon the Soviet Union and he came back and he said, I have been over to the future. That was the future and it works, he said. Some of you actually probably know his, what he wrote later on about 12 years later when he wrote a memoir of his wife about that same event. He actually said, I have seen the future and it works. That's what he's known for saying. I've seen it and it works. Now, of course, um, the 20th century showed us, oh, 
feature didn't work too well. Um, if anything, actually, it did work for some of the high, high ups, but at the expense of many. In fact, I looked at this uh, article. It's kind of hard to find the exact number. In fact, we don't know the exact number, but I looked at an article um, by somebody who teaches at the University of Hawaii, and they said that there was an estimation that between 1917 and 1987, basically the beginning of the Soviet Union and its fall, that there were between 28,326,000 and 126,891,000 people killed by the Communist Party in Soviet Russia. Now, what, what that article says, the most prudent number is just shy of 62 million. 62 million people dead. But here's what I, here's what I want to say with this. Lincoln Stevens wrote these words, right? I have, well, he said these words, I've been over to the future and it works. And then he wrote, I've seen the future and it works. And that idea right there resonates actually a lot with this beginning of 1 John. It's, uh, it, it resonates a lot with this beginning of this really short, uh, striking, significant letter. Um, see, there were a lot of questions, actually, in John's day, just like there are in our day, and just like there were for Lincoln Stevens, right? Surrounding sort of what's the good life, and, and how do you live? Um, they're the same kind of questions we're wrestling with now. Um, there were questions in John's day, way back when, when he's writing. There are questions in Steve, uh, Stephen's day about, like, what is truth? And, and how do you enter into it or not? Or, like, how do you engage in the world out of a true way of being? Um, and actually, there's, a there's tons of societal instability and fracturing that was happening in John's day. And of course, in Stephen's day, and of course, in our day. Um, let me tell you a little bit about this, okay? Um, John, who wrote 1 John and, and the other two letters, um, though I will say that actually one of those letters is at least people are not 100%, you know, there's not a consensus that this was, that was John, but he also wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Um, John, it's widely agreed upon, lived in the city of Ephesus where we have the letter to the Ephesians, right, um, that Paul wrote. But, of course, John was from Judea. He was from up north of, you know, uh, where Jesus did a lot of his ministry, where Jesus had called John to himself to be one of his disciples and to follow him. Um, and uh, we know that John was the youngest of the disciples. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we're told that John was the disciples, disciple whom Jesus loved which is a funny thing to write if you're the author of that, but, you know. Uh, but we also know that he was probably treated in some ways like a little brother. Jesus really cared for John, right? And had a very, very close relationship with John. Okay, here's the thing, though. John, like pretty much every other leader within the church, was actually mostly centered around Jerusalem up until the late 60s. That's not the 1960s, the 60-60s, right? Um, and what happened in the late 60s was actually this war between, uh, well, Rome basically sacks Jerusalem and the temple is raised to the ground, the second temple. You know, the first time it was raised to the ground was in the, in the 580s BC. But basically a lot of people fled. Almost everybody fled Jerusalem if you could. And, and we believe, 
it's widely, widely agreed upon that John ended up over in the city of Ephesus, where Paul had planted a church about 20 years before, roughly, maybe 15 to 20 years before. Um, if you're familiar with that other writing of John, the book of Revelation, what you might know is that there's uh, letters to these churches that are written uh, in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. And the first of those letters is written to the church in Ephesus, which would kind of make sense because John w- that would have been the church that John was most closest to. The second letter was le- a letter that was written to the church in Smyrna, but if you kind of uh, look at all of those towns where those letters are written to, that John wrote that, those letters to, they're all the towns that kind of surround Ephesus. Ephesus would have been on the far western coast of what is now modern-day Turkey and what was then called Asia Minor. So all these other cities are kind of around there, and John would have had a personal connection with all those different, with all those different cities. And if you know, if you're familiar with those letters, a lot of what John is saying is stuff like this, okay? You've abandoned the love you had at first. Do not fear what you're about to suffer, but be faithful unto death. You feel like the the upheaval that's taking place there? The shift maybe in faith? Like, don't abandon this love. Or the possibility that they really could give up on this idea that Jesus alone brings life. Because you know what? They might have to give their life if that's the case. How about this? You're following false teachings and, permit, uh, and living lives that don't hold up with the teaching you've received. Your faith is lukewarm. That's what he says at the, one of the end, the last letters. And you might need to be spit out. These churches have been around by that time, by the time of the book of Revelation, at least probably 30, maybe up to 40 years at that time. And they've kind of had the tribulations of life and they've kind of gone up and down and had lots of doubts and faith. And there's all this social upheaval that's taking place with, with wars happening and people moving and, and everybody around them going, what is this? I mean, you guys are atheists because you don't at least believe in this you know, panoply of Roman gods. That's actually what early Christians were called, the atheists. Um, and John is writing to these communities of upheaval that are tempted to go, you know, I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. Maybe this is not where life is found. Of course, they had um, safety concerns. They had social concerns about sort of fitting in with those around them. Uh, they had concerns about um, sin and, and what is it and what to do about it. They had a lot of temptations and we're going to run into this quite a bit, actually, in this letter in these, the next couple months, about just simply giving into the philosophies of the day. The air that everybody was breathing. And all of this together, what I'm suggesting to you, is that they had other options for where to find life. And some of those options, man, they looked really good. They're presented with the questions of who gives life and what is real life? And what's it meant to be? So John is saying in this little beginning here of 1 John, I've seen the future and it works. It's true and it's good and it's right. But um, just so we can all have some order in sermons, because I know y'all like to hang your hooks on some things. We're going to have two points, and it's this. We're going to say that John says, I saw the future, 
and its life. And I see the future and its life. Okay, saw and see. You get that? Pretty tricky. Two points for this introduction, introductory sermon, okay? First, I saw the future and it is life. Look with me down at your text. First uh, John, we're looking at the New Testament text this fall. Uh, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Okay, here's what you need to get. Part of the upheaval around John's day, uh, like I've said, it was just physical. There are like battles and wars and moving and all this kind of stuff going on. Um, the Jewish-Roman War, the, what's actually called the First Jewish-Roman War, took place between AD 66 and AD 73. Seven years of upheaval. Probably all of your friends, you know, that you'd been in church with from the time of the resurrection to 77, about 33 years-ish. They're all moving. They're all getting scattered. There's just tons of physical, social upheaval taking place. And... Um, there's a lot of destruction taking place in that. And there's a lot of death taking place in that. And there's a lot of questions about how do you live into this new place in this new world where you're at? I mean, think about this. There's this great church in Corinth, right, that we learn about in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And, and in Corinth, there was a temple to Aphrodite. And there are all these Christians living there. And at that temple, there were 1,000 prostitutes that worked full time. And the Christian's like, how do I live into this space and into this place and here in this place where I've been called to be and maybe where I've sought refuge? Or, I mean, of course, there's debate, but there's a widely agreed upon that at the temple there in Ephesus where John lived, the temple of Art Artemis, this great, you know, wonder of the world. There was also a great deal of temple prostitution and people are saying, what, do I, what does it look like to live sexually in this world? And Wondering, how do they engage with their neighbors and all this kind of stuff? So coming out of all of this physical upheaval and social upheaval and sort of physical questions was also this great philosophical idea that many of you probably have heard about, which is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is sort of an overarching category where you have all these other philosophies that fit within it. But um, the very basic idea with Gnosticism is that your salvation is largely in what you know. Okay. The, the great thing of the world is in here. And actually, what it is saying is that the physical dynamics of life are primarily bad. Flesh is what tends towards death and sin. And the physical of this world, uh, at best, it ought to be considered very, very skeptically. Um, if you turn to the inside cover of your bulletin, you'll see a quote by G.K. Chesterton in his masterful work. Orthodoxy, which I highly recommend to you. He says this, according to most philosophers, which would have been at the time of John's writing, and, and often today, God in making the world enslaved it. This fleshly existence is primarily an enslavement. But according to Christianity, in making it, he set it free. 
God had written not so much a, a poem, but rather a play, a play that he had planned as perfect, but which had necessarily been left to human actors and stage managers who had since made a great mess of it. We're going to get into this a little bit more, but what you have to understand simply is that this idea of this sort of physical upheaval and sort of the sexual dynamics of the time were primarily that, you know what, what, what the physical is either evil or it just simply doesn't matter because salvation is what you can think about. It's all inside of you. And the physical is primarily bad or, or indifferent or to be shunned. So God, think about this. So God who is the most spiritual of all beings, who is both from the beginning, as verse 1 says, existing, existing outside of time and space, and who has eternal life, as verse 2 says, right? From the beginning and eternal and the ultimate spiritual thing. And of course, creation has time and space and being like that. Well, it would be easy to think God is this ideal, this thing to be known primarily and only inside of one's head and maybe inside of one's heart. But there's no way that God can really care that much about the physical. And there's no way no way that he would actually become physical. Because the physical only breeds death and decay and destruction. So you see, the first love of the early church, which was this, the declaration that in Christ God became man, that he really took on flesh, that he really, really did die, that he rose from the dead and had a barbecue on a beach, and eight. There's no way that, that that can be declared as the good news. And so that could be the first love that could pass away, could wane in the life of the church. And what also it meant is, and we'll get into this a little bit in this text, is that it doesn't really matter that much what you do with your body. I mean, go to the temple, you know, hang out with the prostitute, do what you want, what makes you feel good, because honestly, the body doesn't really matter that much anymore. Anyway, the, Bible is, or the, the body is a joke, and there's no way that God would take on flesh. And this is what John says, I saw the future, and it's life. It is. Which is to say, that how he begins this letter is to say this. I saw the incarnation. I saw where this physical reality is headed in the resurrection. I'm telling you, it is life. Don't buy all this other stuff. The life that brought life in the beginning. When the word came out from God and created. The life that actually spoke creation into being. He became a part of it. And in that key is the key to your life. Listen again to this. I mean, look at, listen, and if actually I put in the beginning of Luke because I want you to get that this isn't just John that's saying this. This is just the Bible that's saying this, okay? So you can read Luke later. But listen again to verses one and two, or just phrases from it. Which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify it. It was made manifest to us. He just is almost saying the same thing over and over again. 
I saw it. I saw the future and it was life. Probably some of you know that John was the longest living of the disciples of Jesus. Um, it's, be- it's believed that John was writing at least up until about 80, 80, or 90 AD. And you know what we know, actually, is that there's a number of the early church fathers whose writings we have, like Polycarp and Papias, who were disciples of John. Uh, and they were writing, actually, as early as 100 AD. And they had been discipled by John, okay? Um, But here's what happened, and this is pretty much widely agreed upon. John was the last one living, uh, you know, of the disciples, and he lived in Ephesus. And and so probably all these other churches that he mentions in the book of Revelation, they would have sent leaders to come and to speak to him and to get his take on different things. I mean, after all, he was the beloved disciple whom Jesus loved, and, and he walked with Jesus. Are all these things true? And the question would have been, hey, did you really touch him? Did you really see? Is all this a farce? Can we really believe? Um, Let me put it this way. This will be a short illustration, but I saw this little video of this really well-known tennis instructor. He's uh, probably the most well-known French tennis instructor. He used to be um, Serena Williams' coach and whatnot. But he was shown this little clip from the U.S. Open where this guy's got a little mic and he says, 71% of amateur tennis players think that they could win uh, not just a point, but one game in a match against a pro. And this guy just like bursts into laughter. <laughs> That's crazy. Like you, and then he gives all these examples of how this is just absurd, how you wouldn't even win one point. He's like, you have no clue how fast a pro tennis player hits a serve. Like, there's, you are never returning it, is what he says. But this is one thing that he said. Um, he said, you know, it's easy to watch something on TV and to go, I could do that. <laughs> Which we all know, right? Yeah, that looks easy enough. And he says, if you watch some of these people live, you're, your jaw is on the ground. You're like, there's no way I'm ever returning that serve. And um, my children and I yesterday watched the women's, the U.S. Open Women's Championship yesterday. I hope some of you got, y'all got to watch that, where Coco Goff won. It was amazing. And we got to actually see her practice two Saturdays, Saturdays ago. We went up and watched some of her, her practice. And I'm telling you, we were just like, what is she doing? That is insane. That's amazing. And I'm telling you, like, I just have this little experience of watching this clip and going, yeah, that guy's right because I saw it. I saw how good she is. And that was just the same idea. These people are going, John, wait, 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 really? You touched Jesus who you saw hanging on a cross? Really? Is there really life in him? Did you really see the future in the resurrection of Jesus? Part of what's happening all throughout the New Testament, these authors, should, by the way, this is one of the marks of the New Testament authors. Each of the authors had seen Jesus. Even uh, Paul, on the road to Damascus, saw the Lord. One of the traits of New Testament authors is that they had seen Jesus. And of course, their, te- their text that they had written had also been testified among the church. You all might know that there's also a pur- purported to be a third Corinthians, but it didn't make the canon of Scripture. It wasn't agreed upon in the life of the context of the church. 
Anyway, the point with so much of this is they had seen the Lord. They really had been with him. These things really did happen. This isn't some figment of one's imagination. Oh, I hope that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he just raises from the dead in my heart, then you know what? That's enough. There's none of that. John didn't just see the Lord's incarnation, but he also saw his resurrection. He saw the effects of the weight of sin. Jesus, God in the flesh, hanging upon a cross, suffering for our sins. He saw the despair of a life lived, grabbing after power, coming to nothing with Pilate and the religious leaders simply trying to do away with Jesus. He saw that that way of life brings nothing but death, but in Christ there is life. John heard Jesus say that if you go into the ground and you die, you'll be just like him. You will be raised to new life. In Christ alone, there is life. So John's saying, I've looked upon Jesus, and it was life. Like I'm telling you, I saw it, and it's true. It was life that I saw in him. But this is that second point, okay? He says, I saw the future, and it is life. And I want you to, I want you to get this. This is really important, okay? He's saying this. Once this future reality of the resurrected Christ comes into the present. The present is changed forever. You can't go back. It's changed forever. Life was put on display in Jesus. And if you look to him, if you look to him, you will have life even now. Okay, we can talk about what Jesus did. We can talk about what he said, what he accomplished. Uh, we can encounter Jesus. But what he's saying is that when you begin to grasp this reality of God's enfleshment, it's going to change your life now. The future of the future life will bring be brought into the present. Okay, listen again to verses three and four, okay? Verses three and four it says this. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, for a little while he's talking about, oh, we have, we've seen, we've, it's all in the past. But he's saying you have fellowship with the Father and the Son now. Now you do. When you grasp this truth of the importance of God coming in the flesh for us in the person and work of Jesus, he's saying is you become part of a new family. Well, the word he uses is fellowship, which also could mean uh, a partnership or a, a union. Or you could think of this as the, it's a sharing of life. And the life that you share is the life of the Father and of the Son. Life with God himself. A God who actually takes on flesh and dwells among us. Okay. I want to read this. Here's what he's saying. And this is what I really long for us at Second City. 
um, he says there's a kind of life and there's a kind of like a quality of life, um, which is God's own life. That's what he's saying. You have fellowship with the Father and the Son. There's a quality of life that is offered to you that is, a reflect, is reflective of the very Trinity of God. John wants you to grasp this, that actually what is offered to you is a real participation in the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God himself shares of himself with us, and we share it with one another. Life is not just then, is what he's saying. I have seen it, but it's now. Okay, if you grasp this reality of God in the flesh, if you really understand this reality and it changes your life of resurrected Jesus, God continuing in the flesh, then this is what it's going to mean for you. Your neighbor, who is literally sitting, like the person sitting right next to you, right? Well, let me say this first. You, as a being, the scriptures tell us, are made in the very image of God. Hopkins tells us that you're going to shine out, shining from shook foil. You ooze like the glory of God in your being, in your enfleshed being. That what you do with your body matters immensely. How you treat your body matters immensely. But the person sitting right next to you is the very image of God. The neighbor whose apartment is above yours, who plays that loud music, who you just want to yell at, they're made in the very image of God. President Biden, President Trump, nobody that is not made for immense dignity and respect. There's no one. And how you start to treat one another, if Jesus actually would take on flesh, it's got to change how you engage with another fleshly existence sitting right next to you or sleeping in the bed right next to you or running around your house making all kinds of mess, not listening to you when you tell them to pick it up. Every single person, everyone. Some of us actually Friday were at this masterful a multidisciplinary sort of artwork at Messiah um, done by a, a few friends of the Prescotts, um, Bruce Herman's paintings, Malcolm Geit, who I've quoted many, many times in sermons, his poetry and Jack Red, Redford's um, music. And, and what, was ha- what, what the intent was, I mean, it was, it was beautiful. There were lots of, I guess, goals in it, but they took these portrait paintings and put poems to them and put music to them, and it was all coming together. And the idea was simply this. Okay, actually, it was said by uh, Bruce Herman. He said, you know, you only get to look upon, really gaze upon a few people in your life. Maybe a spouse or your children or maybe some close friends, but you rarely get to just sit with another person and look at their face. And in this contemplation of this hour and a half there, we were invited to, to look upon these portraits and just to see and to hear through the words and the music how each person, there are no, this is the title of it, there's no ordinary saints. 
There's nobody who's ordinary. This fleshly existence is charged with the reality of God. Why? Because Jesus took on flesh. And he conquered Satan's sin and death on the cross, and he rose again to a fleshly reality in the resurrection. When we grasp this wonder of a God who does this for us, a God who is not abstract, it's not just something to kind of figure out in your mind. It changes how you start to see one another and touch one another and listen to one another. It brings the reality of the resurrection, which Christ's resurrection was just the first fruits, into the present. It says, this is life. This is the only key to really, really living. I sort of end by telling you of the martyrdom of Polycarp. I mentioned that Polycarp was a disciple of John. Polycarp was also the bishop of Smyrna. So the first letter in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 is written to the church in Ephesus. The second letter is written to the church in Smyrna. Okay? Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Um, Polycarp was discipled by John. Polycarp discipled the early church father who wrote quite a bit um, named Irenaeus. Some of you might have read some of Irenaeus' work. Irenaeus discipled a great, this is such a good word, Hippocletus, and on and on and on. Okay? That's the life of the church. This is what I read, though, about the, the death of Polycarp, and you can read about it, actually, in the martyrdom of Polycarp. But he, he was 86 years old. He was this bishop. He was this leader in the church in Asia Minor, you know, Western, modern-day Turkey. And um, he was considered an enemy of the state. And so Caesar himself actually um, saw to it that there was a warrant out for his arrest and that he would be put to death. Caesar himself, right? And so these soldiers were dispatched, and um, they chased down Polycarp, and Polycarp flees, and eventually, of course, they find him uh, in his hideout, and supposedly he was hiding out in some, in some building, and, and I want you to picture, this guy's 86 years old, right? And he's running from these, these soldiers, and uh, supposedly they eventually find him behind this building and in, the, in this haystack. And they were told, this guy's an enemy of the state and you need to get him. And uh, there he is, this old man. And uh, they've been tracking him for days. They're probably famished. And actually, Polycarp suggests that he has somebody else go make them a meal for a little while, um, which is kind of him. Treated them with respect. They arrest him and they take him back. And the day comes for his martyrdom and he's standing... Uh, with this crowd supposedly behind him and in front of him. And I want you to picture it sort of like a Roman amphitheater, which, you know, it's sort of largely they were sort of half circles, right? Where you'd have plays and whatnot, but where also many Christians died. Um, and um, so behind Polycarp were all these other Christians that were going to die for their faith, right? Which is why a lot of them actually said, I don't want to keep going. It's not worth it. Why would I keep following this if, the, if what it means is that I have to die? Um, but Polycarp is ordered to turn around and he's supposed to tell all these Christians behind him, away with the atheists. I told you before that early Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in all of the many gods of the Roman world. 
But instead, he told this Roman crowd in front of him, away with all the atheists. I guess he was sort of humorous at the time, in some ways at the time. But, um, but I want you to consider this. He's got immense, immense courage. But one of the things that he supposedly said right before he was killed for his faith is this. For 86 years, which keep in mind he's 86 years old, so he probably knew Jesus from, he was probably raised in the life of the church as an infant and brought up in the faith of the church. Be children. Okay, think about that. This man says, 86 years I have been his servant. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? What he does at the end of this life He's been discipled in this idea that God himself took on flesh. He conquered Satan, sin, and death in the cross. He rose to a physical reality in the resurrection. He's able to say, I'm not going to give up on my king, though I die. And he did. Because he knows that there is always life in Jesus. Come what may. Your body may be taken from you. You might be socially estranged. You might lose your job. Whatever it is, he says, there's always life in Jesus, and it's the only place that there is true life. Friends, that is what John is telling us. He's going to tell it to us in various ways. But John's writing this letter knowing that there's temptations that you face and that I face. They're going to say, no, maybe we should give up on all this stuff. And he says, don't do it. Don't do it. There is only life in Jesus. There's only life in Jesus. He had looked upon it, and he said, it's on offer for you right now in the life of those who follow the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that you would bless our church as we consider 1 John. God, I pray that our hearts would overwhelmingly delight in this reality that Jesus came in the flesh that he died for our sins, that he rose again to new life. He's resurrected, he's ascended to the Father, and he will come again. And that our lives deeply matter. God, I pray that we would be a people in this church right here that would look upon one another and every single person that enters these doors with this love that says, you are made in the image of God. You are the closest thing as Lewis said long ago, to the, blessed, to, to the reality of the body of Christ outside the blessed sacrament. Would we treat one another? Would we delight in one another? Would we honor one another? Would we give life to one another out of this truth? That Jesus, you could be seen and heard with ears and touched with hands. You took on flesh that you were given by the Father. You died and you rose again to new life. We worship you, Jesus. In your precious name, amen.